quickly realize the Yes, so uh, giving a Dharma talk, you're supposed to be as covered as possible by your okesa, which is an instruction for your whole life. To be covered as possible, as much as possible by the Dharma, which will eventually cover every situation that arises in your life. The ultimate protection. This is the third full day of Parinirvana Session in February 2019. And as you've seen during this Session, Kisei and I will be offering guided meditations and exercises. If you have an established meditation practice that sustains you and that also guides you deeper during Session, then please stay with that as a foundational practice. Whether it's following the breath or listening to sounds or inquiring into what am I or what is alive. These are all foundational practices and they will support you for your entire life. And perhaps afterwards So we don't mean for you to abandon your foundational practice and spend the whole day sitting as a skeleton. But if sitting as a skeleton is alive for you, if it invites you in, then you can continue with sitting as a skeleton. And any of these practices, if you try them earnestly, even if they don't open up for you now, they can become very important later in your life. For example, if you should get cancer, which is a major fear, it's very interesting to me that people say, have all these reasons why we get cancer because of our impure foods or the water. No, we get cancer because we're no longer dying of heart attacks. We have to die of something, right? (laughs) And when I was in medical school, everybody who came in died of a heart attack. It was just like a, you know, the door opened, hand they came, then heart attack died. And now people aren't dying of heart attacks, and they aren't dying of ulcers, bleeding ulcers, which is was epidemic when I was a medical student. Now, those we've kind of got a handle on those, just to a certain extent, and people die of cancer but you have to die of something. And cancer is just, is arising all the time in your body. Even before birth, there are children born with cancer. So these abnormal cells arise all the time in your body, but your body's immune system is very efficient in screening them out when they're still just a few cells. But then if something gets by that screening system, then it starts to grow. It has a life of its own. It wants to live, too. 
And sometimes we find it early and take it out, and then we're cured for a while, but we're going to die of something. When I first started practicing Zen, I was very intrigued by reading that a number of Zen teachers, uh, Katagiri Roshi and Suzuki Roshi, had died of cancer. And I thought, how could that be that a Zen teacher would die of cancer? But then I read that, I think it was Katagiri Roshi said, well, it wants to live too. I thought, oh, wow, that's a bigger awareness than I have. Very intriguing. So if you should get cancer and become emaciated, instead of being greatly distressed as your body fat and muscles disappear, you would be able to say, oh, I know this practice. I did it in February 2019. (laughs) This is the melting away of the body. And if you come to inhabit a greatly modified body, a body that is little more than skin and bones, which often happens, you'll be able to say, oh, I know this practice. I did this before in February 2019 at Great Vow Monastery. This is just sitting or lying down as a skeleton. It will be quite natural for you to sit as a skeleton. And internally, perhaps even dance as a skeleton. It's actually remarkable what happens when people are diagnosed with cancer. One of our students, maybe 25 years ago, got a diagnosis of breast cancer, and as she came out of the doctor's office, she said suddenly the world was brilliant. Brilliant. Everything slowed down, and everything was so beautiful. So that is the help sometimes, that knowing that we're going to die, even though she didn't, she's still alive, but knowing, ah, this is true, death is true, suddenly we wake up. The exercises and guided meditations that we're offering are intended to prepare you for your own inevitable death by whatever cause. When I started offering the class on death years ago, and then retreats about death, I realized that many important transitions in human life are hidden from us in modern society. So at the time I was born, just at the end of World War II, it was customary for women to be put to sleep Uh, while they were in labor. And when they woke up, they would be handed this nice, cleaned up, wrapped up baby. And my mother, who was a kind of rebellious sort and very interested in health, she had natural childbirth, which was very radical at the time, but she found a place, Chicago Lying In Hospital, the Hope County Hospital, which would allow her to do that. And I'm very glad that she set that example for me, for the births that I've been through. The intent of what was called twilight sleep was good. It was to save women suffering and even save their lives, especially with very difficult births. 
but it also meant that we were missing an important human experience. So often a human intervention that's meant to bring benefit, I'm sure you can think of examples, ends up causing more problems. So uh, we do our usual correction, and we invented natural childbirth. And so now it's common for people to attend birthing classes, do their exercises with their partners, and watch hundreds of videos on YouTube of people giving birth. So death is now not hidden. Any, I mean, uh, birth is now not hidden from us. But death has been hidden from us in a very similar way. Perhaps the idea is to prevent suffering, prevent extreme grief. So usually the body is cleaned up and made up and embalmed and presented nicely. But in, when I do the death classes, I ask people, how many of you have seen a person die? Seen the person, the transition from life to death? And it's not very many people, maybe a third at the most. Depends on your age, too. So at the time of the Buddha, 2,560 years ago, or even in this country, 200 years ago, around the founding of this country, by the time you were a young adult, you would have seen people die. You would know how cold it is to touch a dead body. And you might have helped wash and dress a corpse. You would know what the term dead weight means, having experienced it as you lifted or carried a corpse. You would have attended open casket funerals. You would know the smell of a decaying body. And maybe you would have dug graves and put bodies in the ground and shoveled dirt on top of someone that you loved. Or if you lived in India, you would have perhaps helped light a funeral pyre and meditated as the body was consumed and watched that happen, watched what happened to the body consumed by fire. So this is part of our tradition um, of, in Buddhism of cremation, and actually we go and do a service at the crematorium and, and push the button to start the fire, watch the body being wheeled in, and push the button to start the fire. Oh, and now, you know, we're having green, we're going back to green burials because of the pollution from fire cremation. So there are a number of alternatives which may take us back to digging a hole and putting a body in a, wrap, in a wrapping sheet in the hole and scattering some flowers and shoveling dirt in. So these are very important life transitions and very important to know about. The Buddha was very frank about death. He said, what is aging and death? It's brokenness of teeth, the grayness of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of vitality, degeneration of all of the faculties, sight, hearing, and so on. 
the breakup of the aggregates, the lying down of the carcass. This is called death. The lying down of the carcass, surrendering our carcass back to the earth. So we have these romantic notions that sometime in the past things were better. Like the 50s, or maybe when the Buddha was around. No, but no, aging and death. Aging and sickness and death are universal, no matter when. But because this experience is no longer generally available to us, we have a kind of morbid fascination with death. So you can now look on YouTube uh, or Google Images, and you can see dead bodies. And we have many TV shows about death. So there was one about a mortuary called Ten Feet Under, and about death investigations, like CSI or The Unforgotten, which is a British show about investigating old deaths and an increasing interest in hospice work, which is great. But it seems like everybody at a certain age becomes interested in hospice work. And if you're not a nurse, a doctor, or an EMT, then you have to volunteer to be able to experience this striking sacred passage we call death. The first time I experienced death was when I was a um, teenager and I was working um, as an aide in the hospital um, during the summer. So I had started college and then um, during the summer I, and I decided I, I, during the summer I worked as a, as a candy striper, they called it, because we had candy stripe uniforms. And I decided I wanted to become a doctor. And it was unusual for women to be doctors then. So my parents said, oh, you have to see the dirty side of medicine, the difficult side of medicine. And so the next summer, I worked as a nurse's aide. And I went in and talked to a woman uh, who was telling me about all her old injuries, um, told me about how she had cranked, cranked a car and it backfired, and then the crank went around and broke her arm. So she was telling me about various times that she'd been injured and was seeing a doctor or gone to the hospital when she was younger. And I went out of the room to go get her something. And when I came back, she, there was a team around the bed, and she was dead. And that was really striking to me how quickly that could happen, going from alive and talking to me and reminiscing about her, the history of her life to gone. And of course, since then, I've seen many examples of death, slow, painful, and sudden. Thus, we come here to sit together to face the inevitability of our own death. It is like taking a childbirth course you can take the course and do all the exercises. And of course, it doesn't guarantee an easy birth. But it becomes much more likely that you will go into the birth process with less anxiety. And if you have less anxiety, then all the people around you 
have less anxiety. And if you have less anxiety, it's much more likely that you'll have an easy birth. Just so, if we contemplate our death, if we do exercises, if we learn about death from the inside out, it makes an easier transition into death more likely than if we're completely ignorant. When I gave, the first time I gave birth in Africa, it was in a little missionary hospital. And, um, you know, I had a usual 12-hour labor for a first birth. And, and then that night after I gave birth, a, a young Indian girl came in. I think she was about 15 or 16. And was, nobody had told her anything about birth. And she thought she was dying. And she screamed for hours, I'm dying, I'm dying, save me, mommy, daddy. It was really pitiful. And the nurses, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't encountered this before, that somebody didn't have the, a clue about what was going on. So definitely, if you know more about it, it helps. And then it becomes much more likely to just be what comes forward moment after moment. And although painful, maybe also very interesting. In Zen, we purposely face that which frightens us. In this session, we purposely face death. And doing that can cause all sorts of reactions in the body-mind complex. W.H. Auden wrote a poem. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our delusions die. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread then climb the cross of the moment and let our delusions die. This is such a perfect poem for Session. It doesn't matter what the topic of Session is. Everybody has that time when they face fear. And you have a choice. Do you back away? Do you run away? Which is fine if you decide to do that. Or do you stay with it? Back off a little, approach it again. Move in a little deeper, back off, move in a little deeper, and eventually move through. This poem describes perfectly how we approach something we fear and how we tend to veer away from it. My drummer brother Dido used to say, people say they want to change. People say they welcome change, but he said, they don't. He said, if I change one word in the sutra book, I hear about it in Doksan and Sanzen for weeks. <laughs> so we have to realize that it's the approach avoidance in our practice. I want to change. I want to transform. And yet I'm frightened. Mm-hmm. So how does that fear manifest in many ways? It can manifest in the body. The body objects, oh, I'm getting nauseated. Oh, I feel cold. Maybe I'm getting the flu. I can't keep, there's no, it's not possible for me to keep sitting with this pain. 
where the mind objects and you feel panicky, I have to get out of here right now. I won't ask for a show of hands for how many people have felt, I have to get out of the Zendo right now. I think many hands would go up, including mine. I have to get out of here now before, you know, there's that like before what? Before I what? Scream? Throw up? I don't know. Maybe before I change. I have to get out of here before I change. You can feel change coming. Sometimes I, when I know that something is coming and sitting, I get this chill down the right side of my back. It's like, oh, ooh, here it comes. And I've learned to stay with it. I have to get out of here before I let go. This happens in any session as the protective shield around our ego becomes thinner. But it's more likely in this session as we voluntarily thin the curtains or open the curtains and peer through these curtains that ordinarily protect us from the reality, the inevitability of our moment-by-moment approach to death. We have a whole collection of stories of people who've abruptly left session, left session and then told us what happened later. So one, one woman uh, got a bad headache and just wouldn't go away. And Hogan you know, encouraged her to stay with it and that it was probably a manifestation of anxiety and fear and so on. And she said, no, no, I've got to leave. So she got in her car and drove away. And she said about an hour later, the, the headache completely disappeared. She said, oh, darn it, Hogan was right. (laughs) But if you have one experience like that, then, you know, next time. You can sit through it, and sometimes you can't, and that's okay. But I assure you that you are able, every single person in here is able to stay with whatever arises. And if you do it, you will learn something, and you will be stronger for it. You are strong enough to do this practice. You may have to be creative in how you stay put. I always tell the story in my first or second session when I got a panic attack. I knew I needed to stay. First, I called on the ancestors. And I asked for the ancestors' help. I said, I know you all went through this, all of you. You know, you envision them, short, tall, fat, skinny, bearded, crabby, happy men, women. I know you all went through this, and please support me as I go through this. And then I sang nursery rhymes to myself for a while. (laughs) So I could last until the final bell. So when you get desperate, just do what you need to do. But if you can, stay put. And I learned, facing that again and again in Sashin, that something very interesting might lie on the other side of this attack by the frightened ego.
The ego says, no, 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 no. You know, I know you suffer some, but you know, could be worse. Could be much worse. The unknown could be much worse. So let's just stay with things as they are. So this is what it is to be a human, and a human who's practicing to try to become an awakened human. And one of the things I love about the story of the Buddha's last days is how human he becomes in the sutras, in the Theravada sutras, the original sutras, the original account of the Buddha's life. And of course, there's some little magical things in there, which I don't know, he may have done, I don't know. So it's, I'm sure there's some embroidery, but you can tell when you read the sutras, ah, this, this is, this is really what happened. And in the sutras, he's not a golden being with supernatural powers in the Pali Canon. And he's not an implacable stone image on the altar, smiling gently in meditation no matter what happens. He's one of us with an aging 80-year-old body. So the account of the Buddha's last days is a, is a very long sutra, the longest in the collection called the Maha Parinirvana Sutta. Maha means great. Parinirvana Sutta. It's a very detailed account of the last few months of the Buddha's life. And because of the detail, and because we know that people remember clearly dramatic events, like the death of your parent or the death of your teacher, it's thought to be quite accurate. And it's been, it was preserved originally through oral recitation, which was actually what people felt was better than writing it down, because you can make mistakes and misspellings that change the words and so on when you're writing. But if you have a whole group of people chanting together, one person makes a mistake. Like I always, when I make a mistake chanting a chant I've chanted for decades, it's, I always see it's because my mind wandered off momentarily. So that happens to everybody make a mistake, but the group keeps the chant on course, right? Or if we're uncertain about whether to pronounce beings as one syllable or two syllables, beings or beings, the chant leader keeps us on course. So it was preserved through oral recitation for the, 20, the 200 years after the Buddha's death, and then it was written down at a time when there was an epidemic in Sri Lanka. Buddhism had died out primarily in, in India. And there was an epidemic, and uh, the monks and nuns were dying in droves. And they decided, as an emergency measure, they needed to write it down. And they gathered the, the um, reciters. So each person had a piece that they recited. And then they had a group that they recited with a piece of the Pali Canon. So they gathered the, the best reciters in a cave, and they wrote day and night in the middle of this emergency. So the cave is known even today as the Cave of Light, because they kept lights, lamps burning day and night as they wrote. So 
So this is a very interesting sutra because it is so detailed. It tells exactly what the Buddha was doing, and what he was doing was going from place to place and teaching. So I'm going to read you some little excerpts about his body. So this is uh, verse 27 in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra. The Blessed One's deathly sickness. At that time, the Blessed One spoke to the bhikkhus. Go, bhikkhus, and seek shelter anywhere in the neighborhood of Vaisali, where you are welcome among acquaintances and friends, and there spend the rainy season. So that would be like our ango. The rainy season, we, the monks stayed put because the roads were flooded, rivers were flooded, as we heard about people being carried away in the, in the rivers. And um, also, the, because animals come out like earthworms, you might tread on them and kill them. Here, the earthworms come out when it rains, and we do earthwards, earthworm suicide prevention. We go around the monastery preventing them from killing themselves by crawling onto the pavement towards the building and desiccating and dying. So this is the rains retreat, and he's telling them, go to Vaisali or anywhere around there and uh, do the rains retreat. As for me, I shall spend the rainy season in this very place in the village of Baluva. So be it, O Lord, the bhikkhu said. But when the Blessed One had entered upon the rainy season, there arose in him a severe illness, and sharp and deadly pains came upon him. And the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed. Then it occurred to the Blessed One, it would not be fitting if I came to my final passing away without addressing those who attended on me, without taking leave of the community of bhikkhus. Then let me suppress this illness by strength of will, resolve to maintain the life process and live on. And the Blessed One suppressed the illness by strength of will, resolved to maintain the life process and lived on. So it came about that the Blessed One's illness was allayed. And the Blessed One recovered from that illness, and soon after his recovery, he came out from his dwelling place and sat down in the shade of a building on a seat prepared for him. So this sounds like a superpower, right, that you get ill and you can re repress it, but I bet everyone here has done it. I bet you have been in a time in your life when you were really busy and you said to your body, you can't get sick now. Maybe you start to get a sore throat and you say, no, I do not have time for this. Later, you can do it, but not now. So it's just a development of our ability to work with body and mind. Hmm? So he came out and sat down in the shade. And then the venerable Nanda, Ananda, his cousin and uh, personal attendant, approached the Blessed One, respectfully greeted him, and sitting down at one side, he spoke to the Blessed One, saying, Fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One at ease again. Fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One recovered. For truly, Lord, when I saw the Blessed One's sickness, it was as though my own body became weak as a creeper. Everything around became dim to me, and my senses failed me. Yet, Lord, I still had some little comfort in the thought that the Blessed One would not come to his final passing away until he had given some last instructions respecting the community of bhikkhus. So Ananda uh, reveals his fear that his teacher is going to die 
and he's asking for a final instruction. And the Buddha has already decided that. He said, I can't die now because there's more than I need to instruct um, my community in. Thus spoke the venerable Ananda, but the Blessed One answered him saying, what more does the community of bhikkhus expect from me, Ananda? I have set forth the Dhamma without making any distinction of esoteric and exoteric doctrine. There is nothing, Ananda, with regard to the teachings that the Tathagata holds to the last with the closed fist of a teacher who keeps some things back. This is an admonishment to teachers. Don't hold anything back. Whosoever may think it is he who should lead the community of bhikkhus or that the community depends on them, it is such a one that would have to give last instructions respecting them. But Ananda, the Tathagata has no such idea that it is he who should lead the community of bhikkhus or that the community depends upon him. So what instructions should he have to give respecting the community of bhikkhus? I've taught you everything that I know many times over. What's left? Now I am frail, Ananda, old, aged, far gone in years. This is my 80th year, and my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda is held together with much difficulty. So the body of the Tathagata is kept going only with supports. It is, Ananda, only when the Tathagata, disregarding external objects, with the cessation of certain feelings, attains to and abides in the signless concentration of mind, that his body is more comfortable. So he's saying only in deep meditation is his body comfortable. And then he utters the famous lines, therefore, Nanda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourself, seeking no external refuge, with the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. And then he says, oh, and, okay, Ananda, I'm going to review how that's possible for you. And he starts with the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is why I keep teaching it over and over again. The Buddha taught it over and over again, even as he's dying. So that's one example of the Buddha's illness and how he managed it. And then... We go through specifics. He reviews all of his teachings, so it goes on for pages. Um, and, then, and then they're very specific about where he's doing the teaching. So this teaching was in Vaisali at the grove donated by Ambapali, whose, whose poem about the regeneration of her body I read the other day, or at Kapala Shrine, or at Ananda Shrine, or at the Hall of the Gabled House. Many, many more specifics, which make us think that this is quite accurate. And then, as he's leaving Vaisali, he turns with the elephant's gaze. And the elephants, when elephants turn, they have to turn their whole body around to see behind them. And so the Buddha does that. He turns all the way around and looks at Vaisali and says, Ananda, this is the last time I will see Vaisali. And then he moves on. Uh, he moves to Pava, and he stays in the mango grove of Kunda. Kunda is a metal worker from a family of metal workers, many generations. And Kunda comes and hears um, the Buddha talking. And he invites the Buddha to 
meal. And the Buddha accepts uh, the invitation and goes with uh, his, his other uh, monks and nuns. And it says that um, Kunda, the metal worker, had choice food, hard and soft, prepared in his abode together with a quantity of Sukhara Madhava and announced it to the Blessed One, saying, the meal is ready. So the Blessed One got ready, put on his robe, took his bowl, put on his robe, took his bowl, and went with the community of bhikkhus to Kunda's house. Sat down and then said, looked at the food and said, with the Sukhara Mandava that you have prepared, serve me only and don't serve anyone else with it. And after you've served it to me, bury it in a pit. So the Buddha has an awareness that uh, this will be the cause of illness, which indeed it was. So the Buddha ate this, and we don't know if it was a type of mushroom or if it was spoiled meat, pork, because the, the translation, some translators translate it as pork and some translate it as mushrooms. And it's quite common for people to pick mushrooms mistakenly, you know, poison mushrooms mistakenly. It's happened when people came to the U.S. Uh, even a few years ago, it happened here. And soon after the Blessed One had eaten the meal provided by Kunda, the metal worker, a dire sickness fell upon him, even dysentery, and he suffered sharp and deadly pains. But the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending, and unperturbed. Then the Blessed One spoke to Venerable Ananda, saying, Come, Ananda, let us go to Kusinagara. So you know our chant, Kusinagara. You know what happens at Kusinagara. Mm -hmm. So here he is sick, but there, he's continuing on the pilgrimage and uh, teaching wherever he goes. Now on the way, the Blessed One went aside from the highway and stopped at the foot of a tree. And he said to the Venerable Ananda, Please fold my upper robe in four, Ananda, and lay it down. I am weary and want to rest a while. So be it, Lord. And the Venerable Ananda folded the robe in four and laid it down. So he's making a little cushion for the, for the Buddha to lie down at the foot of the tree. And the Blessed One sat down on the seat prepared for him and said to the Venerable Ananda, Please bring me some water, Ananda. I am thirsty and want to drink. And he actually makes this request several times because Ananda says, well, there's a little shallow stream nearby, but carts have been going through it, and the water is dirty. And the Buddha says, Ananda, please bring me some water. So it's clear that the Buddha is dehydrated. And on the third request, the Buddha says, go and get the water. And Ananda goes and finds that the water has been clarified, and he brings the water back to the Buddha. And there's another example when the Buddha says, my back is hurting, my back is aching, and I need to lie down. And I would like to lie down with the sun on my back to warm my back. So very touching. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha experienced the kinds of discomforts and pains that we experience having a human body. But because of his practice, he was able to not translate it into suffering. Pain is inevitable if you have a human body. But what we add to it through the mind is suffering. What will happen to me if 
Where am I going to die? If I die, who's going to come to my funeral? Right? On and on. What's going to happen to my children? What, what will it be like to die? Will I suffer more? I haven't done a will yet. So the Buddha suffered from illness. We know just from this one sutra, from back pain, from bad dysentery and dehydration. Could feel that his body was coming apart. And he said that he was only comfortable when he was meditating. If you learn just this from practice, if you learn how to practice when the body is uncomfortable, it will be a great support to you in the rest of your life. When I, a couple of years ago, I had uh, pneumonia and pleurisy, which is an inflammation of the lining of the chest. And usually when you breathe, your, your lung touches the inside of your chest, and then there's a kind of uh, lubrication there, so it, it comes away easily. But when you have pleurisy, it's all inflamed, so every time you breathe, it sticks to your chest wall, and then it has to peel off. So it's quite, every breath is, uh, is painful. And um, it was a very interesting time to work with pain with every breath. Fortunately, I had done that already at Sogenji during a retreat and uh, had learned a lot about pain, a lot about pain. And I was practicing so intently that pain became divided into strong sensation, space, strong sensation, space, strong sensation, space, space. And it was the first time I clearly saw through pain. Because you know how things slow down when you're meditating and open up when, you, when they're not bookended by past and future and anxiety and distress? So I knew when I got the pneumonia and the pleurisy that um, I, could, I could be with that pain, even though it was much worse than the Sogenji. And then I got cocky, which happens in practice. And then I had a knee replacement last summer. And I thought, oh, I know how to work with pain. But this was unrelenting, severe pain, because it's like carpentry work on your knee. You know, they have a circular saw, and they have chisels, and they have screwdrivers and hammers. And <clears throat> it, was, it really, really hurt. And um, I, couldn't, I could not stay with the pain. So I took opiates for three days. <laughs> thank goodness for opiates, thank goodness. We have these medicines. And then the practice was able to take over. But when you learn to sit with pain, and you learn that pain is not an impenetrable wall, that pain is permeable, and that pain even has the quality of shimmering impermanence, it will be a huge breakthrough for you. Because the main fear around death is a fear of pain. People often say this, I'm not afraid of dying, because I'll just be dead. I'm afraid of pain before I die. And when this happens to people in session, when they have this experience of seeing through pain, that's the best way to describe it. It's inadequate, but that's the best way to describe it. They come into Zanzen triumphant. So if you're in pain now, please practice with the pain. There are a variety of ways to practice with pain. The most, I think, valuable one is to investigate it. Really go into it, investigate it. What color is it? 
What surface texture does it have? What size is it? What it does it is it prickly or smooth on the top? How deep in is it? If, if it had a color, what would the color be? If it had a sound, what would the sound be? Describe it in detail. Really look into it. Is it constant or is it intermittent? Really look. And then start again and come back and look again. If we practice with pain in the good times, then we'll be ready for pain in the difficult times. If we practice with our mental suffering in the good times, this is a good time. Sitting in here, being fed these fantastic sweet meals, this is a good time. If we practice under these optimal circumstances, then we'll be ready for the difficult circumstances. And you will have a kind of courage and uh, trust in yourself that you can do it, having experienced it here. So then um, the Buddha moves on and teaches other places. And then um, they arrive at Kusinara. And Ananda notices that the Buddha's skin is clear and radiant, shining as if golden in color. As if golden in color. I'm sure you may have detected radiance in people when they're really happy, when they've fallen in love, or you know, something special has happened to them. There's a luminous quality. So just magnify that and add some uh, golden tint. And then you see why many of the images, like our, the image of Kashiki Garba Jizo behind that screen, is, is gold. And uh, Ananda mentions it to the Buddha. He says, whoa, dude, you know, you're like shining. <laughs> that is totally awesome. And the Buddha says, there are two occasions on which the skin of a Tathagata becomes exceedingly clear and radiant, the night of their enlightenment and the night of their final passing away into death. And so that's how the Buddha says this is the night. And then the rest of the sutra talks about that night, which is also very, very moving. So now we're going to do an exercise together to look straight at another fear. So I've talked a little bit about the fear of pain. But there's another fear surrounding death. What will happen to those we leave behind? Some of you have mentioned that to me. So um, maybe stand for a moment, stretch a bit. Just stand and stretch. It's not going to be long, but it's better if you're refreshed a little bit when we start it. Sit back down when you're ready. For this exercise, we're going to use the power of our imagination. So in Zen, classic Zen meditation instruction, we don't use imagination, but it can really be a help. In classic Zen meditation instruction, we're, we're dealing with what is real right now. And when the mind wanders off into fantasy, 
then we notice and we bring it back. But there's nothing wrong with fantasy, but for some people, that's where they live most of the time. Actually, when your mind wanders to the past or to the future, that's also fantasy, but I'm talking about the kind of fantasy where you imagine yourself in Hawaii by a beautiful waterfall and handsome men or women are tending to you. So we can take that power of imagination and bring it to bear on our practice, and it can be very helpful. So I would like you to lower or close your eyes, whichever facilitates bringing in the imagination. And imagine as vividly as you can that you die right now, that you just collapse. You don't know the cause because you don't know the cause. You just die. Maybe it's a stroke, heart attack. You don't know. But you just collapse. And then, as many people say who have died and come back, you pop out. You pop out and you find your perspective is as if you're floating up near the ceiling and looking down. So there you are floating near the ceiling and you can see everything that's happening in clear detail. And you see this collapsed body below you and at first you don't recognize it and there's a commotion. People look around and then gasp and then get up and come over and shake this body and maybe turn it over and feel for a pulse and then start CPR. And at first you don't realize, oh, oh, there's a person in trouble down there. But then you realize, oh, wait a minute. That was my body. But I'm free of it. So you are floating up near the ceiling, watching what is happening. You have only awareness. You have no agency. You cannot speak. You cannot move anything. You are only aware, but your senses are wide open. You can see very clearly and hear very clearly. Though there's a commotion, eventually the paramedics arrive. They rush in, they attach equipment to this body. They start CPR, they put a tube in, oxygen put this body on a stretcher, and away they go. And you watch everybody deciding what to do, settling down or some kind of service for the welfare of this body that's gone off, to the hospital, to the emergency room. In the emergency room, the doctors try everything they can, but it doesn't work. This body cannot be held together any longer. It's dead. So now we fast forward to the memorial service or funeral for that body. And again, You can see it as if from above. 
You can see everything that's happening quite clearly. You can hear spe people speaking, but you have no agency, only awareness. You're aware of this memorial service of funeral. You look down to see what has become of that body that was once called your name. Maybe it's in a coffin, maybe it's ashes in an urn. And you look at your family one by one. How are they doing? Your friends who've gathered How are they doing? Maybe co-workers. People who knew you in school. Whoever's come. What are they doing and how are they reacting? And what might they say about you? So now we fast forward one month. It's a month since that body died. Where is it now? And you are still just aware. And so you look again at your family. How are they doing? What are they doing? You start with those who were closest to you and then you can spread out and look at friends, co-workers, what's happened at work or at school. And you suddenly left. How's everyone doing? And you might look at your possessions, your clothing and the things that you treasured, books, art, objects, supplies for hobbies. What's happening to the things you left behind? Now let's fast forward six months. It's been six months since that body you used to call your own has died. Where is it now? Then you look at the people who were closest to you, your family or your friends who were closest to you and knew you best. How are they doing? 
And what are they doing? How are they feeling? And take another look at your possessions. Now we fast forward one year. One year, perhaps there's a memorial service at the end of the year. People have gathered. How are they doing? What might they say to remember you? And when they disperse from the ceremony, who are they? What do they go back to? And take a look again at your possessions and a year later. Now we fast forward five years, five years after you died, after the body died, and you're still aware, quite aware. Look again at the people that you loved and loved you. How are they doing? What are they doing? How do they remember you? What's happened at your work or any of the organizations that you belong to? And take a look at your possessions, your old possessions, what's happened to them. Now we fast forward 10 years, 10 years since you died. Look again, family, friends, those who were closest to you. Your possessions. Now 25 years. 25 years since that body died. Where is it now? Where are all the things that you collected and treasured? And how are the people who knew you doing? How do they remember you? Now we fast forward a hundred years. A hundred years. 2,119. 
100 years. What's happened to that body you used to call by your name and believe was you? And what's happened to all your possessions? To your family and friends? Has your awareness changed? As you've lived aware, as awareness, as pure awareness, for 100 years? Finally, 200 years, 2,219, or 2,220, 200 years have passed since that body died. You look down where you used to live, where you used to work, or go to school, or meditate, or do activities with your family or friends. What do you see? And is there any trace of you left in people's memories or physical traces. Does anyone remember you? Are there physical traces left of that body? Where are they? Is there any other trace besides a physical trace of your existence in that body when you had agency? Thank you very much for doing that meditation. I try to do it at least once a year. I find it very helpful, and I hope you did too.